Well, good morning. This morning, we want to take uh, Acts 23 and go through it together. I've titled the discussion, Paul's Apologetic to the Sanhedrin. This is his second apologetic. He just, in verse chapter 22, he had an apologetic that he gave to the crowd. Uh, That didn't go well, but Paul has been given a second opportunity to share um, a defense for what he's doing and how he's doing it as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So just some uh, introductory comments here before we get into the text. Uh, Acts is a transition book from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The primary protagonists were Peter and Paul. Both served all ethnicities, but Peter became known as the apostle to the Jews and Paul as the apostles to the ethnicities. Peter delivered the first explanation of the New Covenant. Although the term New Covenant is not used in the book of Acts, it's still what we're talking about. The Old Testament was the Old Covenant, and now the New Testament era is the era where the the New Covenant is in force. So the first explanation of this was given to us in Acts 2, where Peter explains the supernatural events that surround the day of Pentecost, and he gives us a one-verse conclusion that is the heart of the good news of the kingdom of God. And the heart of it is simple, that that you, he's talking to the, the Jews that who crucified Jesus, that you who've crucified Jesus need to know this, and you can know this with certainty, he says that with certainty, that this Jesus whom you crucified, the Father, the Heavenly Father, has made him both Lord and Christ. That was the message, and then Peter stopped. Peter didn't do what we normally do today, where we give invitations and try to guide people into saying the sinner's prayer and all of that. Peter did none of that. He simply put the truth in front of him. And this group of highly biblically literate people, which we almost never have people like that, uh, immediately start connecting the dots between the Old Covenant and Jesus. Because if Jesus is Lord in Christ, all the prophetic pictures of the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant, about the Messiah, about the Christ, and who he was and what he would do, all of those prophetic pictures took on a new dimension of life for them. Now, throughout the book of Acts, Luke recorded the unfolding events to gain clarity of the good news of the kingdom of God. Remember, the message, the kingdom of God is the overarching theme of the book. This is what Jesus focused on in his discussion with his apostles during his his 40 days in which he was on earth after the resurrection. He was still here. He hadn't ascended yet. During that 40 days, according to Acts 1-3, his, his theme was the kingdom of God. Imagine walking with Jesus for 40 days, having conversations with him for 40 days, listening to him for 40 days, and all he talks about is the kingdom of God. That's all he talks about. You see, when you hear that, recognize that, and then you start looking at the book of Acts, and you see there are multiple times in the book of Acts it talks about the kingdom of God in terms that assumes you understand that's what the book is about. Uh, We're not very quick on putting that kind of focus on the good news. But Jesus did, and the book of Acts does. So we need to get lined up with them. Paul was recognized as an apostle, but not one of the original apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. 
Acts 1.8 is many times misapplied, in my opinion. It appears to be a mandate to the apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They would be his witnesses. A witness is a legal term. A witness is someone who gives testimony at a trial. That's a witness. And And the testimony they were giving was that Jesus was resurrected. Now, today, we've morphed the term witness. It, we use the word term witness of something that we do, like we're witnesses. We're talking about, you know, we want to be a good witness to somebody. That's not the idea of it in Scripture. That's our, that's our concocted, our distorted idea of it. The idea of Scripture is they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were testifying this really happened. This is not a made-up fantasy this really happened now that's hard it's very hard because it doesn't fit our pictures and we're very much used to you know defining reality the way we want to we've all been indoctrinated over the last 300 years by this great awakening paradigm of christianity that denies the kingdom of god and puts all the focus on going to heaven everything's about getting people to make a profession of faith as if they could Paul says no one will do that unless they're divinely empowered. So we we get this distortion going, and we start counting noses, and that's how we define success. We just wind up confused. We don't really get what's going on. We've got to get back to what Scripture really says. Paul did not come to Christ of his own volition. It was not his choice. There was no preacher. There was no pulpit. There was no meeting, okay? There was no gospel message. He was intercepted by Jesus at the sovereign pleasure of Jesus. He didn't know what was going on. All he knew is he was blind and he's on the ground, and he knew that the Lord had appeared to him. But he said he didn't know who the Lord was, so he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus identified himself, and Jesus left him blind. And Jesus left him with his pagan friends who had no clue what was going on. All they know is their leader is suddenly blind on the ground. And so they lead him into town to a place called Straight Street. And then Jesus, at his sovereign pleasure, sends a man to be the agent of healing, which shows you that God does use human beings in the process of bringing people to Christ. But he could do it very creatively, and we need to get out of this mindset about we got to have meetings, you got to have revival meetings, you have to have a pulpit, you have to have a preacher, you have to have an invitation, you got to say the sinner's prayer, you got to get baptized. This is just, this is not fitting what Scripture is telling us here in the book of Acts. So we've got to get back to what Scripture says and live according to the Word. Acts recorded the first convocation of the church council as well. The first church council, it convened to clarify a question. There was a quite big question. Christianity clearly is rooted firmly in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the purview of the Jews. So the thinking was, if you're going to be a follower of Christ now, if he's the Messiah and he's Lord in Christ, and you're going to be a follower of him, well, how does that work? Well, you have to become a Jew was a natural assumption. It was a predicate many people had. It's not what Scripture teaches. It's just what they assumed. So that first church council was intended to try to clarify and answer the question. 
And they came to a partially correct answer, but not a complete, completely correct answer. They did affirm that you're saved. You, you come into saving relationship with Christ through the sovereign work of God, and it's manifested. It's called the grace of God, and the way we know someone's received the grace of God is they begin to express faith in Christ. You will not express true faith in Christ unless you have been born again. Now, sadly, the commission, the, the, the Jewish people of that day were still holding on to some vestiges of the law, so they didn't conclude with a clear statement of the good news of the kingdom. A clear statement would have been what Paul said in Galatians 1 and 2, where he talks about we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, period, and faith is not a work. Faith is a response. That's what That would have been a really clear message, but they didn't do that. They had their stipulations and basically said, you know, you're saved by grace, plus you should abstain from food offered to idols, from meat strangled, from blood, and from sexual immorality. So they had four stipulations that later would be dropped. So it just shows you the first church council was not fully on board with the truth. They saw part of it. Paul uh, conducted two more apostolic journeys after the first ecclesia. The final one ended in Jerusalem. And this is where uh, Paul is uh, encountered by opposition, and the opposition is very, very uh, aggressive. Uh, you could say even violent, and they try to kill him. And we saw that in chapter uh, 22, where he's trying to defend himself for the first time to the Jewish people there. As soon as he pointed out his role, his call to the ethnicities, a riot breaks out. And, of course, the, Germ- the Roman soldiers get in there, and they rescue Paul. They take him back to the barracks. They think, uh, we've got to scourge this guy so we can find out what's going on here. And Paul, Paul plays his uh, citizenship card, which he'd played it before. He played it in Philippi, and now he's playing it here. And basically it's saying, is it legal for you to scourge, that is to whip, a Roman citizen who's not been convicted? And they realized that's against the law. So they stopped. But the tribune who was in charge wanted to understand. Now, I need to understand why there's such an uproar about this guy. Uh, He's not who I thought he was. I thought he was an insurrectionist from Egypt. That wasn't true. I found out this guy speaks Greek. He's a learned guy. And when he made his defense, he just stirred up trouble. So what I need to do is I need to get a small group together. Let me get the leaders together, and I'm going to put Paul there in front of them, and I want to hear why you're upset with this guy named Paul. And so that's the setup now for Acts chapter 23. So Paul is before the Sanhedrin, so let's read the text. I'll just make a few comments as we go along here. Acts 23, verses 1 through 11. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest ordered those who were standing near him to strike him on the mouth. You see, Paul has made a boast. He's boasted about how he's lived, and the high priest didn't like that. So he issued an order, strike him on the mouth. Then Paul apparently doesn't know who issued the order, doesn't understand this guy is the high priest. He says, God is going to strike you, whitewashed wall. You're sitting before they're uh, they're judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of law, you're ordering me to be struck. In other words, you're a hypocrite. That's what he's telling him. You're a hypocrite. You're you're 
trying to use the law to punish me, but you're not submitting to the law yourself. Then those standing by said, do you, do you dare revile God's high priest? And then Paul gets repentant here. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. He's going to apologize. For it is written, you must not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Paul is saying, I'm not a hypocrite, guys. I follow the law. I made a mistake. I repent. And when Paul realized that one part of them was Sadducees and the other part was Sadducees, he cried out. Now, so you see a shift here between verses 5 and 6. Paul is, um, Paul is kind of taking stock of who's in the room and he knows them because he's formerly a Pharisee himself. He knows the religious leaders and the conflicts that exist between them. And he chooses the strategy of divide and conquer. So we have this first six marks a shift now to his new strategy. So he says this. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees, the other part of Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, brothers, I am a Pharisee. A son of Pharisees, I'm being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, that word judge there is crino. It means to make distinctions, to recognize, separate things that look like they may go together and show. No, they don't really go together. There's a distinction here to be made. And when he said this, a dispute broke out. Now, this is the word uh, stasis which is from the word istami. Istami means to set up. Uh, and you're going to see a little bit later that the word uh, anahistami is used, which means resurrection. Resurrection is to stand up again. So the idea is, is this, this dispute that broke out, it just stood up. It's like emerged between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly and the word assembly here is not ecclesia, which it could have been, but it's plethos, which means the many. It's probably better to say the, the crowd, the many, all these people. The crowd was divided. The religious leaders were divided. There was a schism. That word that we get schism from was used here in the Greek language. It was a division between them. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. There's no standing again. Once you die, you're, die, you're gone. You don't stand again. And neither angel or spirits, they deny those. But the Pharisees affirm them all. So we have the continuationists, you could say, were the Pharisees. The cessationists were the Sadducees. Or you could say, another way to express this, and I heard a theologian say this in his commentary on the text, the Pharisees were the people who believed in predestination, and the Sadducees believed in free will. That's an interesting distinction made. Uh, so the Sadducees were, you could argue they were more humanistic, and the Pharisees were trying to live more biblically. You could argue that way too. So there's several angles that you could see this from. And going on, the shouting grew out, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' parties got up and argued vehemently. So there's emotion here. They say this, we find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, now, now you're going to have the Romans step in. It's, uh, something's happening here, really. I guess they're grabbing hold of him. They're probably shaking him. They're threatening him. Something like that is happening. The commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them, and, <clears throat> and he ordered the troops to go down. So the troops are probably around uh, this meeting. 
and watching it and say, you need to go in it, go down and go get him, take him away from them and bring him to the barracks. So that's what they do. I don't know how far away the barracks were from where they met. Did they meet in the temple? We, we really don't know. They very likely did because this was a meeting of the, of the leaders. The following night, so now we have Paul back in the barracks, and we have the Lord now going to come talk to him. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has had a dream or a vision from the Lord in Jerusalem. He had one some 25 years ago when he came to Jerusalem after he initially was converted to Christianity. He spent some, about three years away from Jerusalem. He comes back. He thinks everything's going to be fine, and he has a visitation from the Lord that tells him it's not going to be fine. They're not going to believe your testimony. You just need to get out of there. And that's that. eventually, if you go back to that text, you'll find that Barnabas, Paul's father, spiritual father, took him away from Jerusalem and sent him back home. And that's when Paul began his silent years. He had, it's hard to tell how long he was silent, but it was his silent years where he was alone, he was back home, don't know exactly what he was doing, and he stays there until his spiritual father Barnabas comes to get him some probably five to ten years later. So that's an interesting picture right there of how God works. When we see calling correctly and commissioning correctly, you see God many times uses father figures to call you out and to place you where you're supposed to be. If you're not connected with father figures who can do that, you probably are just living like a humanist. You're just self-directed, and that will not go well. Paul was patient enough and learned to be patient enough to let the Holy Spirit direct him through these father figures to where he was supposed to be and when he was supposed to be there. So the dream comes, and this time it's very simple. The Lord stood by him, which, interesting, you have the Lord standing by him. The Lord is spirit. Um, so standing is what material beings do and not spiritual beings. So you have anthropomorphic language here where, it, and this is common in Scripture, where God describes himself as if he were a man, but he's not. This is not to be understood that he has physical properties. He is a spirit being. So the Lord come and came and stood by him and said, have courage, for as you have testified earnestly, this is the word for testify intensified. That's why it's testified earnestly about being in Jerusalem. So it is necessary for you to go and testify of me in Rome. And again, the testify, he'd be testifying not about him, what he did to choose Christ. That's the way we do it today. He's testifying as to what Christ has done for him. And Christ has intercepted him. His story is, I was not seeking Christ. Christ sought me. I didn't choose Christ. Christ chose me. Probably, if we could get that, that would probably improve our abilities to communicate truth to those we're called to serve. All right, let's continue on. Uh, a plot now is going to be de developed because the opposition to Paul is intense. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. The, these men were, went to the chief priests and elders and said, we bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat or drink anything until we've killed Paul. So now 
Now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that the, this is the Roman commander, that he bring Paul down to, to them. And when he comes down, they're going to kill him. They're going to ambush him. So that's what's going to happen. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported to Paul. So he comes and tells Paul, this is his nephew, probably a young boy. And you'll see that when he interacts with the commander, the commander will hold his hand. Well, you don't hold the hand of a a teenager or a young man. It's most likely a young boy. Uh, So Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this man to the commander. Remember, the commander is over 10 centurions. Each centurion is over 100 soldiers. So the commander is the big dog. He's like a colonel, if you wish. Take him to the commander. He said, uh, the prisoner... Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and led him aside and inquired privately. So the commander is very sensitive. He obviously wants to hear what the boy says. And you'll see he believes the boy. He believes him. So I don't know why he believed him. I don't know why he didn't want more evidence, but he's going to believe the boy. The commander took him by the hand, led him outside, and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow, as though they are going to hold a more somewhat careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you, because there are more than 40 of them who are lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him, killed Paul. Now they're ready and waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell what you've informed me about this to anybody. This is just between us. So he's clearly believed the boy. So immediately... He prepares to send Paul off to keep him safe. He, he, I guess he presumed that this is getting too hot for me. I don't know what's going on here. I can't get to the truth, and it's getting really intense. And the Romans really, the way they, they ruled a conquered people is they looked for voluntary compliance. If the voluntary compliance wasn't going to go there, it was going to be a big burden on them to force comply. So they didn't really like to do force compliance unless they absolutely had to. So reading on in verse 23, this is now the, uh, he, he summoned two of his centurions. This is the, the commander and said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at night. Now, I think this is, I think we're looking at 470 people here for just one person. That's, that's a like pretty good size bodyguard also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote the following letter, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. So Claudius Lysias was obviously the name of the commander. So he's writing to the governor Felix greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews was about to be killed by them. I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned he was a Roman citizen. Now, that's maybe not quite totally true. It's kind of spun to his advantage. But nevertheless, you know, he's writing the letter, so he wants to look good here. You would expect that. Verse 28, wanting to know the charge they were bringing accusing him of, 
I brought them down before their Sanhedrin. That's their governing body. The, the, the Romans generally didn't interfere with local religious customs. They let you keep your religious customs. They just wanted power and control. That's all they cared about. They wanted you to comply with that. And generally people would because it's a trade-off. You let us do our, our religious thing and we will submit to you. It's that kind of thing. That was a fairly common pattern. Verse 29, I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law, not Roman law, but Jewish religious law. And there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. In other words, I, this guy hadn't done anything wrong that I know of. When I was informed that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered the accusers to state their case against him in your presence. Now, I we don't have a, a separate record of that, so I presume that that's, that's what he did. He told them the next day when they start looking for him, he said, I'm sorry, he's gone. I've sent him to Caesarea. Uh, if you want to accuse him, go to Caesarea. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antiparus. And as they were with him, uh, they next day they returned to their barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. And those men entered Caesarea, delivered the letter to the governor, and they also presented Paul to them. And after he read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he was, he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace, which means those were very nice quarters. There was nothing uh, second class about that. You're kept in the palace of Herod, the king. So he was, accommodations were nice. Uh, he was safe. He was taken care of. And next, the next chapter, we'll find out how he did before the Roman rulers in explaining himself. So let me just uh, give you a couple of points of theology and maybe an application here real quickly. One of the things that Jesus does is he unites and also he divides. Now that's kind of striking because we like to think of him as the uniter, but not the divider, but he does both. Uh, he both separates and unites. He was Prince of Peace with a sword. He divided by making distinctions between good and evil. He united by healing those whom he redeemed. So I'm going to give you just some quick bullet point examples of how he unites and divides. So some examples of division, going back to Genesis 3.15, the war between two seeds divides the universe into the kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness. The next one, every human is given a conscience. Roman 2 tells us that there's no such thing as someone that doesn't have basic revelation about God. Everyone has basic revelation about God. There's no such thing as a person who hasn't heard about God. We've all got it. Sadly, that's one of the deceptions today. People run around saying, well, all these people I have here haven't heard about God. No, they've heard about God. They have revelation in creation about God. But they are repressing it and rejecting it, and you're not going to get more revelation until you obey the revelation you have. That's what is given to us in Scripture. So every human, as part of their revelation about God, is they have a conscience that enables them to divide or distinguish right and wrong. In every culture of the world, it's, it's universally accepted that murder is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Lying is wrong. These are things that people just know because they have a conscience that tells them that. That's part of God's common grace as general revelation given to everyone. Next one, Jesus is the incarnation of truth, which is distinguished from lies. Satan is a liar and the father of lies, 
which is the natural language of fallen mankind. We we come into this world born and dead and trespasses as then we have a proclivity to lie and to be deceived by lies. Next, Christianity was birthed through Judaism. They're distinct. Therefore, some view Judaism as a precondition for becoming a Christian. That was the whole point of the first church council. Is it a precondition that you become a Jew before you can be a follower of Christ? So this was a major division point in the first century and a reason for that first council. And finally, as far as examples of division, I'll give you this one. There was division on the good news of the kingdom of God. Was the good news grace alone? Or was it grace with these four stipulations from the first church council? Those stipulations were abstinence from food offered to idols, strangled meat, blood, and sexual immorality. And, of course, eventually Paul would clarify this in his letter to the Galatians, that it's grace alone, no stipulations. This is the, this is the good news of the kingdom. So, but, but first, there is division about exactly how to understand that. Now, some examples of unifying where Christ is a unifier. Consider this. Scripture is God's revelation to humans to explain the war between two seeds. So Jesus is the unifying theme of the Old and New Covenants. He's what connects them together. Next, death is separation from the Father. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from the Father spiritually, and eventually they died physically, which is further separation. So that is, that's a division. Death is division, but resurrection is a restoring of what is lost. It's a restoration of life from death. So that's an example of how God unifies. He will unify people back with life who have died. The unifying central theme of the book of Acts is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is always what is the overarching idea. Every sub-point in there finds its meaning and purpose in understanding the kingdom of God. Next, in contrast to the judgment on the world in the form of many languages because of the Tower of Babel, at at Pentecost, Jesus unified by making diverse languages intelligible to those who are present. That's fascinating how he did that. He did that in part because the people of Israel had been judged for their failure to obey the law in the Old Testament and dispersed. And by being dispersed, they learned languages of the heathens, but still they practiced the most diligent faithful of these, these those in the dispersion practiced their Judaism, and they would come to feasts like Pentecost. And when they came, they could hear different languages as well as the Hebrew language. So, God speaks to them in all these different languages, reminding them, you're scattered because of sin, and now I'm going to pull you together in Christ. It's a beautiful picture if you can see it. And then finally, Jesus was resurrected and appeared to over 500 people. The disciples, the apostles, the 11 apostles, the original apostles were eyewitnesses. That's what they bore witness to. They were not telling people how they chose Christ. That's what we do today. They were telling people, Jesus is alive. He was resurrected. We are eyewitnesses. We're giving you testimony. We saw him. We touched him. We talked to him. He's really resurrected. That was what they were charged to do in Acts 1-8. And that's one of those texts that I think we, we just have missed that 
what the text is really telling us because we want it to say something else. All right, let me give you an application. I've titled this Live Not by Lies. Hopefully you recognize that's a title of a book by Rod Dreher. Uh, but I, I'm going to play off that just a little bit here. So one study reported that 93% of people admit to habitually lying in the workplace. For many, lying is not a moral issue. It is a tactic to, tactic to accomplish their purpose. In the book, Live Not by Lies, written by Rod Dreher, he states this, the foundation of totalitarianism is an ideology made of lies. The worldview of totalitarianism is built on lies and deception, and the worldview is being manifested today in the form of Marxism and socialism. Increasingly, euphemisms are used to hide the lies to, by trying to make, <clears throat> make evil look good. Well, that's what a euphemism does. It's uh, You take something that's bad and you, you sugarcoat it in some way. So, for example, in talk about, talking about the murdering of babies, we characterize that as reproductive rights and women's health issues. Or homosexuality, instead of recognizing that that is sin, as the Bible does, it's touted as the freedom to love whoever one wishes. And gender dysphoria, which is clearly means people are confused about the biological gender that God has defined them to have. That's what gender dysphoria literally means. But it's promoted as an individual choice, as something that's good, that people should have the freedom to do to make themselves whole people. So all of these are euphemisms that hide lies. Christians should be very quick to identify the lies and recognize the truth. God has defined the beginning of life in the womb. The Creator also defines the biological sex or gender of each person. None of us can control that. Your parents did not control your gender. That was sovereignly assigned to you. Whether you like it or not or comfortable with it or not or want to change it or not doesn't matter. God's defined it. You don't have the right, the privilege. You have not been assigned the authority to change it. These attempts to change it will turn out to be a total disaster. There are already reports of tremendous regrets on the part of many people engaging in these transition surgeries. It's a failure. And we continue to see the spirit of Antichrist lying to us, promoting this lie and deception. Failure to recognize God's definitions is to live by lies. Lies are so inculcated in the culture today that humans seem immune to them. We can't we don't hardly see them. We don't recognize them. We don't we don't look for them. We don't expect them. And we need to learn to expect we live in a culture that is driven by lies and deception. So lies are inculcated in our culture. For example, they're in school settings. Parents tend to believe the, the children over the teachers. We believe the teachers are lying to us when it's probably the children who are lying to us. We don't recognize the lies of our children. When the children start lying and we believe them, they've won. They have won the battle. So when I grew up, my parents never believed me over a teacher. I don't understand the change. I mean, this is baffling to me because children are very immature, very narcissistic. They're going to do what they want to do. Most teachers, at least some, I'd say a majority of teachers, want what's best for the child, which means what aligns with God for the child. And the parents are, are 
buying into the lie that their children are telling the truth, not the, not the teacher. That's a lie. Most likely it's a lie. There, I know there'll be some exceptions, but as a maxim, you should believe in the teacher over the parent. In the early 1980s, Francis Schaeffer traveled the United States speaking to Christians, warning them about the rise of lies and deceptions. He was seeing it 40 years ago. He noted the origin of the United States was deeply rooted in Christian ethics as defined by Scripture. He saw the culture of the United States was losing its Christian memory, which was based on biblical truth. Since its founding in the late 18th century, the culture of the USA has progressively disengaged and has lost its ability to live in Christian truth. In the first century, when Christ was on earth, truth was a virtue. It was such a virtue that people could believe other people. So when the Apostle Paul claimed to be a Roman citizen in Acts 16 and then again in Acts 22, he was believed. He, there wasn't any search to confirm. There wasn't any questioning. They believed his testimony. And when Paul's young nephew reported the plot to kill the Apostle Paul to the Roman commander, the nephew was believed, even though he was a child. This suggests that people back then prided themselves on being truthful. They were self-governed under the biblical truth of not lying. Now that's We should be self-governed under that truth. But we're not today. We find lying as a convenient tool to accomplish our purpose. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. If you really have Jesus, then you are reflected in living in truth. You will be self-governed under truth because you're self-governed under Jesus. Nevertheless, since the fall of man, lies have been part of the fallen world. It's all, the lies have always been here. Satan is the father of lies, and we, we are very prone to them. And in recent times, Satan's influence on the culture of the world seems to be more pronounced, and lies have become more acceptable. Perhaps it's the judgment of God on a world that increasingly denies God's standards. The struggle of humanity is the struggle for truth and the grace to live in truth. However, the base, the base nature of man, mankind, is so fallen that there is an irresistible propensity to embrace lies. It's always been here. It ebbs and flows as to how strongly we buy into the lies. At this point in time, it looks like lies are a big part of the culture of the humans of the world. Humans by nature want to live by lies. It's only by the grace of God that we don't. And there have been times in history, like the first century, when truth was more valued than lies. But now we, thought we seem to have lost that sense, and we're, we're embracing lies and not valuing truth. Even when humans, through common grace, show a desire for truth, it's not sustainable. The only permanent solution to the disease of living by lies is the truth of Jesus as revealed in Scripture and historically understood by the Orthodox Church. That is the only way to correctly live. May we have the grace to so live. May we have the grace to recognize the lies of the culture and to not be influenced and to not, not succumb to this, but we would give ourselves wholly to Christ to learn the truth and to learn how to live in the truth for the glory of God. So may we do that well in Jesus' name. Amen.